1: Well guys, it is February 1st, and you know that what that means. Our long national nightmare that is dry January is over
2: or or just don't do dry january I don't under, I don't understand dry January just just drink moderately throughout the year. That's what I do. Like why do you need to like have a dry January just have a have a damp January and then a damp February. A moist a damp January. year. A moist. Oh, I don't know. That's a bummer word. Ugh. I don't like that word.
1: Uh-huh. I will say I did dry January. And doing a dry January when you have a one-year-old in the middle of a pandemic and you can't leave your house for a month straight is <laughs> the worst single idea I've ever had. And so I will admit I am celebrating it. By having a little drink right now when we're recording, even though it is 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, a very breakfast appropriate, light work appropriate drink. It's just getting the creative juices flowing.
3: Scott, I don't I don't know what good dry January does if it encourages this kind of behavior.
2: <laughs> also, Me I either. have to say that's a very large mug. Audience members can't it see this. Really? It's is, an enormous mug. So it's I'm just a large very mug. curious if this is just a giant mug of vodka that Scott is drinking on.
1: I guess we're gonna find out by odd necklaces. <laughs> <laughs> And hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rogue Pun, a Rational Security Story. Mm -hmm. I am Scott R. Anderson, one of your co-hosts. I'm here with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are excited to have with us another first-time guest from the broader Lawfare Cinematic Universe, Roger Parloff. Roger, thank you so much for joining us here today.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: You are about to step foot in one of the more eclectic and weird corners of the lawfare u- universe of podcasts and written products, and so we hope you're fully prepared and embraced yourself. Uh, I don't know if you've chosen to partake in uh, a cocktail or other sorts of, uh, you know, chemical facilitators uh, at this point, but, um, <laughs> but we're excited to have you here.
3: <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you very much.
2: We, we, we should, Scott, we should call this the chemically facilitated edition.
3: I just want to say that I'm drinking a cup of coffee.
1: I think that counts. I think that counts. That's exactly right. I've got a cup of coffee going as well, among other things. With, so it's fine with <laughs> a little
2: with a little extra something something <laughs> in it. A
1: Just extra. don't mix them. And that's fine. I'm very excited to share what it is I'm, I'm sipping, which people might find out later in the episode. But for the time being, before we can get there, uh, we need to get into dig into this the wet February edition of Rational Security 2.0 where we have uh, a number of topics brewing in the national security world that despite this short month ahead of us, seem set on making it a very exciting, interesting, and in some ways, perhaps even a little scary one in the world of national security. Topic one, the Turnheel State. North Carolina Congressman Madison Cawthorn has now sued to stop a state law inquiry into whether he is disqualified for running for reelection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment for participating in the January 6th insurrection. His lawsuit doesn't dispute the facts, but instead makes arguments on due process grounds and reliance on an 1872 law that pardoned members of the Confederacy. What are the odds of his case, and what does it tell us about the possibility of future disqualification proceedings? Topic two, he took home a bronze for dodging the issue. The Beijing Olympics get underway later this week, kicking off a multi-week period where Olympians, their governments, sponsoring corporations, and sports hands will all have to navigate an array of tricky questions about how they should act in light of China's questionable conduct on a number of fronts, including its human rights record and expected surveillance of attendees. What should we expect from these games around the games? And topic three, there never was a quiet part, was there? Former President Trump Triggered a stir earlier this week, really bringing us back to a moment of nostalgia to that 2017 to 2021 period when he released a statement suggesting not only that former Vice President Mike Pence could have and should have overturned the 2020 election outcome, but that he would pardon participants in the January 6th insurrection if reelected in 2024. What impact will this have on ongoing reform debates and Trump's election prospects? Alan, for our first topic, let me hand it over to you to introduce.
2: So like a a good con law professor that I am, uh, let me just read Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and then we can talk about it in its relationship to uh, Representative Cawthorne. So Section 3 of the 14th Amendment states that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, etc., etc., to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. So Madison Cawthorn, a freshman representative from North Carolina, uh, one of the more Trump-aligned of the uh, House GOP caucus, is currently being sued in North Carolina state court, specifically before the North Carolina election board, Um, Arguing, uh, as Scott mentioned, that because of his actions on and around January 6th, his uh, public statements on that date, some allegations that he met with protesters or met with some of the rioters beforehand, um, there's all all sorts of stuff in there. But that because of his actions, um, he has committed insurrection or rebellion against the United States, and therefore uh, he is not eligible to uh, run for uh, re-election. And another of the defenses that Cawthorn has made is that under the Amnesty Act, which is a law that Congress passed um, shortly after the Civil War, part of its ending of Reconstruction, which is a whole another interesting story, it removed this disability under the 14th Amendment for all individuals for all time. And therefore, this amendment basically no longer has any uh, operative value. So let me start with uh, you, Roger, because I know you've thought quite a bit about this and have followed this closely. Just to get a sense, what is your instinct of where this lawsuit is going? Is, is this a, quote unquote, real lawsuit in the sense that it has some real chance of keeping uh, Cawthorne off the ballot in 2022? Or is there some other purpose for this
4: lawsuit? I think that it has a real chance of forcing him to give some discovery. I don't think I mean it's obviously a long shot in terms of blocking him. everything about this subject you know shouts long shot. The Supreme Court has never had a section three case. All the precedents that exist are over a hundred years old, so it's wide open, and of course, anything that does happen would eventually get to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court seems like it might be hostile to this sort of thing but Looking at uh, this case, the reason Cawthorn is first is uh, I, I think it's pretty obvious, not because the facts are worst against him, but because North Carolina happens to have an incredibly receptive or, or uh, way to challenge people's uh, on the ballot, even in the primary. And one of and you only need to show a reasonable suspicion that he might not be eligible. And then you apparently get, and, and you only have to be a voter. You don't have to be uh, an opponent. And then you apparently get uh, the the burden shifts to him to show he is eligible. And you apparently get discovery. And of course, that's, that would be interesting. Because right now, I don't think you have enough to show uh, engagement in uh, insurrection. There's been all these uh, rumors that, uh, did somebody give tours? Uh, that sort of thing. The petition alleges uh, that he helped plan the event, that he knew there would be violence, or he should have should have known there would be violence. In fact, he he, he cites a, a totally authoritative source on that, which is uh, Quinta, uh, in the petition. <laughs> uh, something she wrote in. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, in uh, Lawfare and saying why why everyone should have seen that the, the violence was coming anyway it's it's a long shot but it's not preposterous and uh it's it's quite interesting and and even though a lot of us might think uh i don't know if this, it's wise to go here or not we are here you know we're going to have more of these we might not have a whole lot more of these because not every state uh, has as an attractive uh, a mechanism as North Carolina does. Obviously, they would have started in Alabama with Mo Brooks if they could have, and they must have looked into that and said, you know, that's a harder haul.
3: I will say that's the thing that jumped out to me looking at this lawsuit. I sort of agree that, you know, this is really, it's a long shot bringing out Section 3 is making a pretty, strong claim about the nature of what happened on the 6th and what should happen to the people who were involved. On the other hand, as you say, Roger, it did happen. <laughs> Here we are. And now we have to figure out what to deal with it. And so the the idea of turning back to processes and institutions that were created in the aftermath of the civil war doesn't seem like a crazy idea to me on an abstract level. That said, I do agree. It does seem like there's kind of a mismatch between the, state level procedures that are available in these different cases and the conduct of the representatives in question because it seems like there i haven't seen anything at least um on the public record that clearly indicates that Cawthorn was individually extremely involved in violence beyond the level of um as that piece i wrote that was cited says you know the fact that it was obvious to anyone with two eyes who can boot up twitter that something bad was going to happen that day. And so well, say, Mo Brooks, who spoke at the rally, who was really closely involved, might be a better candidate, we have currently, I think, um, a Supreme Court decision saying that Section 3 is not self-enforcing, and therefore we're kind of stuck with the state statutes on the books in the absence of any congressional statute.
4: There is a ruling by uh, Chief Justice Salmon Chase, uh, but he was acting as a circuit judge, and there are ways to distinguish that case and it also uh, he also gave a, a conflicting ruling uh, a few months earlier the same year in a case involving Jefferson Davis uh Jefferson Davis was charged with treason and his defense was that uh well this uh, section 3 is uh is self executing and uh that's now become the only penalty that i can incur under sort of principles like double jeopardy. And Chase, who actually opposed Section 3, apparently from the start, said, yeah, I buy that. And uh, he, he ruled in favor of Davis. Now, that, that ruling was uh, appealed and then never heard because uh, Davis was uh, pardoned. So you're right. There is something on the books with uh, by Chief Justice Salmon Chase. But even if supposing that you're right, that it needs to be, Congress needs to implement the law in some way, an argument can be made that Congress did implement the law with respect to North Carolina, because it said, it admitted six Southern states, including North Carolina, on condition that they agree to enforce Section 3. And that's still on the books. So that sort of helps with respect to North Carolina and Alabama. It doesn't help with respect to Arizona, where you have people like Gosar and Biggs. So anyway, that, it's a little more complicated. Uh, but I, I, I mean, you're right. There is a precedent, and it's by a uh, illustrious justice.
1: That's a very generous take on that particular justice. But yes, I agree. But <laughs> I'll give it to you. A famous justice. A famous, certainly famous.
2: I would have just a justice named after a fish.
3: <laughs> the best name to a justice. good name. Well named
1: justice, And it's a fascinating story. This is a topic I dug into months ago uh when I was on paternity leave. There's like a fantastic story because he was also very politically active in urging reconciliation after the Civil War. And so there's this like he's he's a fascinating figure in this whole debate about how this messy constitutional amendment was implemented or messy part of the constitutional amendment. One procedural note we should note, uh, which just happened at the last night or this morning, they uh, Matt and Cothran actually filed a separate lawsuit in federal court uh, to try and enjoin the state law proceeding under the same legal arguments. Um, so now we're going to see these separate proceedings go. But I tend to think Rogers exactly right. Like actually, what I suspect is going to come down to is the extent to which the federal court may or may not be willing to intervene with the state proceeding while the state proceeding is ongoing and hasn't reached any conclusions of its own. Because at this point, I don't think it's necessarily. It's my understanding is it hasn't actually reached a determination that Cawthorne is uh, somehow disqualified or not. But it's in may well go to this discovery phase that Cawthorn seems very intent on avoiding. That would address the factual basis of potential disqualification, meaning his participation in January 6th. The the thing I would note here is that when you get to the federal law question, and again, this is part of the reason I think a lot of proceedings is going to hinge on how willing the federal court is to intervene in the state Legal proceeding. It's a tricky question. I actually think Cawthorn may have the right of the law. And I think a lot has come back to this amnesty law he's citing, which is something I think a lot of people trumpet as sounding kind of absurd, like an amnesty law for Confederate uh, soldiers somehow from 1872 is disqualifying it. But it's a statute that uses incredibly broad language. It basically says all disqualifications under the 14th Amendment whatsoever for all persons should be with. Withdrawn, um, and then I note certain exceptions for that two-member, you know, the current Congress and the Congress after the one that was enacted. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think that's right. Certain types of officials for a period. Now, there's a question over legislative history about saying, okay, well, what did they intend by this broad language? Were they just talking about the people who've been disqualified under the Civil War that for them was obviously like that's what everyone's talking about, or they did they mean for it to be future looking? And that is, I think, a hard question on legislative history, but. We live in a moment when legislative history just doesn't count for that much. When you have text that's pretty plain on its face, and particularly in a context like this where, frankly, the Supreme Court, and frankly, most federal courts, aren't going to want to get into this. Like 14th Amendment Section 3, I think, is potentially really dangerous and really damning because it supersedes First Amendment rights and lots of other constitutional rights. Um, And if you leave it up to Congress to interpret how it's applied, I worry, as I've said on this podcast before what other Congresses or other state legislatures, if they're allowed to implement it, are going to do with it. And I worry about people involved in civil disobedience or Black Lives Matters protests and how people are going to try and turn the same disqualification against them When you don't have as clear a definition about what exactly they're getting at, about what insurrection means. Um, And I don't like the muddy of the waters around that. I think most courts are going to feel the same way. And constitutional avoidance principles, if nothing else, are going to push them to say, we may interpret this law fairly broadly. And it's worth noting that law passed with the two-thirds in the House and Senate required under the 14th Amendment Section 3's own text to say you can give people exceptions from this. You need two-thirds of the House and the Senate to approve it. The one case study that people bring up about this is Victor Berger, a 1920s congressman who disqualified from serving in Congress under a 14th Amendment Section 3 theory by members of the House of Representatives. I don't think that's actually a good counterpoint uh, for the simple reason that the House has the constitutional right to determine the eligibility of its own members. And so it doesn't actually bear on the interpretation of the law. They can actually interpret the law in ways different from the courts and exercise it. And notably Berger returned to Congress twice after that and served two more terms. Um, so obviously he wasn't disqualified permanently, as one would expect from a 14th Amendment Section 3. Um, so long story short, I, I think this is hard case on the federal law. It's just a question of how far the federal court's going to let the state proceedings go. And I think they may let it go for a while on federal federalism principles.
4: I actually think that uh, that particular argument is is extremely weak. I think there are formidable obstacles, but that particular one, because the language, uh, yeah, it, it, whomsoever... But it doesn't say anything about applying prospectively, which is an exceedingly weird thing and probably an impossible thing. You know, it it amounts to a uh, Congress trying to repeal the act, and they don't say anything about that in the language or anywhere else. It's a partial repeal. And in 1898, uh, there is the remainder of the repeal. I'm not sure how... The 1898 law uh, actually says that it only applies to disabilities heretofore incurred. Now, I don't know how that cuts with respect to 1872. An interesting uh, Philip here, and I was talking to uh, Gerard Malioka, a professor at Indiana, who uh, wrote about this in uh, December 2020, if you can believe it, a few weeks before the event, but I, I should also say he's now consulting for the plaintiffs. He points out that, um, you know, uh, Robert E. Lee was uh, given a disability in 1975, 1975, by a joint resolution of uh, Congress shortly before the centennial. And um, the theory was that he died shortly before 1872, wasn't covered by the first partial amnesty. And so Malioka points out what this would mean if if Madison Cawthorn is correct, is that dead people were not covered by the amnesty, but the unborn were. Uh, now that could be, but it's an unusual metaphysical uh, situation. I, I just think that the language doesn't support that. But uh, the other thing, and this is non-scientific, but right after January 6th, you know, I, I looked at, I tried to follow on all the blogs, the constitutional log blogs, all the arguments going back and forth. And one argument I don't remember seeing was this one. You know, there's a lot of uh, articles that were written that, that, and this was never considered. So uh, I do think there are formidable arguments, like maybe, you know, Congress, uh, we know that Congress has control over the qualifications of its members. Maybe Congress is the only one that has control over its members. I think Derek Muller has made that argument, uh, an Iowa law professor. I think those are stronger arguments. Maybe not winners, but stronger.
2: Yeah, I I I will say... A le- from a legal perspective, this all strikes me as a giant hot mess, and I have absolutely no idea how the courts will will deal with it. Uh, you know, I'm not myself a huge fan of North Carolina's incredibly broad statute that allows anyone to challenge anyone's qualifications for any reason and trigger discovery. That does not strike me as, frankly, how a well-run election system should, should operate. And so, you know, I... I as much as I'm not a fan of Cawthorn or his politics, um, I, I do think the, the the North Carolina model is is not actually a great one for the health of our democracy. And more generally, I am pretty skeptical, uh, or I am increasingly skeptical, at least, of the use of this sort of disqualification as a tool for dealing with anti democratic politicians. I mean, this is not you know there are plenty of historical examples here, not just after the Civil War. You know, you have um, denazification after World War II. You have debathification in Iraq after the Iraq War. You have what was called lustration, uh, which was um, the tendency in Central and Eastern Europe to ban former members of the Communist Party from participating in, in democratic elections. The intuition I totally understand, um, but I do wonder if um, in the long term, this sort of action does more harm than good because, uh, you know, for, for for two reasons. One I think it it allows liberal elites, and when I say liberal, I, I don't mean left. I mean kind of like liberal, legal, kind of small L liberal elites, um, to continue to think that the way the best way to defend democracy is through these legalistic techniques, right? That again, you know, if you want to save democracy, go through the courts rather than do mass public mobilization. And two, I think it creates a kind of victimhood complex for those who are the subjects of these of these laws. Because instead of being defeated at the ballot box, you know, the the, the elites are coming to to get them. So, you know, I, I just wonder if, if this is the right way to try to hold these folks uh, accountable rather than to redouble your efforts to get Madison Cawthorn unseated from the House of Representatives. Or if you can't do that, just make them a laughingstock like we've turned Marjorie Taylor Greene into one.
3: I completely disagree. And I think we're near the end of this segment, which means that I get the last word. First off, I take your point. I think that arguing for mass public engagement in a electoral system that is so thoroughly broken as the U.S. electoral system is, is a losing proposition. And so you have a bit of a chicken and egg problem there, and that turning to institutions given how broken the system is is actually not a terrible idea. Granted, you you are right that there are potential costs here and I agree that the North Carolina the just the fact of how broad the North Carolina law is does perhaps need some retooling. But I think the I disagree with all of the examples you cited and I think that the way that those example I disagree is actually telling so one is, we're not talking about anything like de or denazification. nazification de was a massive removal of thousands and thousands and thousands of people from public life in Iraq by force, by uh, invading American force. This is one guy, if it works. If it works, maybe we'll see a handful more. Of these cases. It's not anything close to that. And the other thing is the denazification in West Germany didn't work because they didn't pursue it. I looked so I I looked this up because I knew Alan was going to make this argument. In 1957, 77% of the German Ministry of Justice's senior officials were former Nazi Party members. So... They did not have a purge in West Germany. I don't think either of those examples are really really speak to what is happening here, where it's a question of a very small amount of people who it's being argued should not be able to participate in public life. I also think that it's very different to have a push like this coming sort of from grassroots up than it is from uh, you know an invading army or a new government down. It is. Because the situation, we're in a circumstance where political action has not, is, doesn't seem like it's going to be able to push these people out. There is not a mass rejection of this kind of ideology by the Republican Party as a whole. And so these kinds of lawsuits are sort of the Hail Mary that you get at the very end. And I think you do have to consider them differently in that context.
2: But isn't that the opposite of grassroots, though? I, I just, I mean, I, look, look. I, Wait, what do you well, mean? Well, I, I mean, if if the whole point is that there's not a mass political rejection of Madison Cawthorn, then isn't kind of by definition trying to use the legal system? And I'm not saying it's like an illegitimate use of the legal system.
3: Well, it's, but it's it's bottom up either way. It's just different forms of what bottom up looks like.
2: Okay, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into, a, I don't want to get sidetracked into a debate about what grassroots here means. <laughs> the
3: definition of grassroots. It just it, just, it just,
2: it just strikes me that that a a lawsuit to keep someone from running from Congress that is brought by a kind of elite legal organization and it has you know like sophisticated law professors behind it. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that that doesn't strike me as a super grassroots.
1: I think we may have gone down a bit of a rabbit hole we're going to have to dig ourselves <laughs> out of as we're running out of time. Also, I will say it's really unfair to bring up debathification and not let me weigh in at any point for future reference <laughs> as the guy who lived in Iraq for several years. But I will say, all I will say with this segment is this messiness is why I am convinced that the Supreme Court and any federal court will take the easy out that Congress, a prior Congress, has given it in the form of the 1872 Amnesty Act. Uh, and I will bet smart money on it. And if you think that a Congress, Supreme Court would rather get into all of these issues than taking out, then you are drinking even more heavily than I am this morning. But we will find out as things proceed in the courts. Well, turning from one route by which Madison Catharn may get off the hook to another, we heard from former President Donald Trump this past week. Uh, What used to be a pretty regular occurrence where a statement by Donald Trump that sounded a little crazy would lead all of us to go into a big tizzy for a week. But we haven't done this in like a year. And it was kind of nostalgic for me uh, to have this crazy statement then send me off into a legal tizzy digging into um, different laws, statutes and constitutional provisions. Because former president said two things of particular interest. One, that he thought former Vice President Pence had the authority to... In his language, as he initially said, it overturned the 2020 election. He subsequently kind of walked this back in subsequent statements. Uh, And that in trying to reform the Electoral Count Act, Congress is in fact confirming that Pence had that authority in 2020 and should have, in Trump's view, exercised it. And then President Trump said separately, uh, or at least strongly implied, that he would most likely pardon at least some, if not all, participants in the January 6th insurrection if and when he were elected back to office. Two pretty dramatic statements from our former president, a man known for dramatic statements. Quinta, I'm going to hand it over to you first. How should we be reacting to this? What does this mean for the broader questions of both accountability for the acts of January 6th uh, and related conduct, but also for the prospect of 2024, this election that's already begun looming ahead of us, even though it's still one more election away, and in which Donald Trump appears positioned to play a central role once again?
3: I thought it was interesting that when Trump made those comments about potentially pardoning some of the January 6th defendants, Maggie Haberman at the Times, who's sort of their Trump whisperer, made the comment that she felt that this reflected anxiety on Trump's part about a potentially slipping grasp over the Republican Party. And I I think what I interpreted this, at least, to mean that he's sort of going out there and making an intentionally incendiary comment as a way of shoring up his popularity with his base, potentially trying to grab that popularity back from politicians who have been more aggressively anti-vax than he has like uh, Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, for example. And that, that seems right to me the way that he said it, it seems a little bit more like Trump in the mode of saying something intentionally incendiary and out there to see if he can rile up the crowd and or the press rather than Trump giving voice to some deep, long-held conviction on his part that this is a thing that he should do. Which makes me wonder, honestly, whether the outrage about it will lead him to to dig in, frankly. Which doesn't mean it was a bad thing to report on it, but I do think it's part of the dynamic. And whether we'll see him dig further in. Um, it feels like a kind of a protean moment where he could either just completely drop it if he feels like it's not working for him or he could really latch on as a way of sort of claiming the the martyrdom of the January 6 rioters for himself.
2: I mean for, for me it's just another example of the way in which Trump has managed to hack American politics because yet again I think he puts with the statement the democrats into a lose-lose situation because on the one hand, and this is what the con law professor and me wants to do, is just endlessly talk about this because I continue to think that Trump represents a existential, and I hate that word because I think it's always overused, and I think it is not overused in this case, an existential threat to American democracy, and that we cannot talk about it enough. Like It is just not possible to talk enough about the greatest threat to American democracy, which currently comes from a defeated, but, you know, eligible for re-election person who has no civic virtue, clear authoritarian tendencies, and is still, although, you know, his popularity is maybe slipping here and there, is still, without question, the most popular Republican political figure and the party's biggest fundraiser, right? So, from my perspective, like, I don't see how we can talk about anything other than that. On the other hand, I am convinced that As a political matter, this is not good politics for the Democrats, that in fact, most Americans, or at least, let's put it this way, those Americans that the Democrats need, those quote unquote swing voters or moderates that they need in 2022 and they need in 2024, don't want to talk about Trump. Don't think that January 6th was as big of a deal as, for example, I do want to talk about covid want to talk about inflation want to talk about crime want to talk about you know all these non-trump issues and so i think it really puts the democrats in a bind because on the one hand i think that there's nothing more important than than dealing with donald trump on the other hand it may be that politically the most important thing is to ignore donald trump but then you're left in the position of just allowing this insane anti-democratic language this insane anti-democratic behavior to go without real response and i i i I just personally kind of tie myself into knots about, about how to do this. I mean, thank, thank God I'm just a random law professor and not like a political strategist because, um, I would clearly do a terrible job at that.
4: I, uh, mainly take, uh, just a, a narrower response. I mean, I, I guess politically I was a little heartened by the fact that there were a few voices like even Lindsey Graham distancing themselves from what he said, but I mainly looked at it. All of these statements, you know, if Trump ever is charged with a crime, or if we just look at all of the pending civil suits against him, these statements ratifying the events after the fact, the insurrection, talking about pardoning them, I think all of these are admissible to show his original intent. You know, that's going to be the key question. Did he intend to incite this riot uh, as, you know, one of the many ways of trying to delay the count and and get help from the state legislatures? I don't think uh, inaction alone after the fact uh, is going to be criminal. But All of these things seem like evidence to me that the original intent was to do this. He's happy with what they did. And so it's relevant that way. Whether any of these things survive motions to dismiss, I don't know. If they do, I think they're not helpful to him.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed-indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: I have to agree with that. You know, I think this is another instance of what is such a signature Trump trend, which is that he does something that objectively seems so phenomenally goddamn stupid, puts it out there for the world. A segment of his supporters reacts really positively, and everyone assigns it to political genius on his part that he has tapped into something that will define like the kind of next wave of Democratic action in the United States. I think that's. Not generally been true in Trump's history. Like I think a lot of his conduct was a lot more self-destructive than uh, we give him credit for. You know, it's all counterfactuals. Who the hell knows? But I think, frankly, you could have a smarter man in President Trump's role do a lot more damage or be a lot more effective in advancing the things that I don't like that he wanted to advance. Put things maybe slightly more objectively. And the fact that he didn't go about it particularly savvily uh, hurt him uh, as often as it helped him. Although he definitely taps into some sort of like you know strong sense of. Bereavement and 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 distaste in a certain part of the American electorate, right? That helps him in particularly Republican primaries uh, in the general election to some extent, but I don't know if it gets him, you know, to a win at all cases. And I think that's the case here too, even in the Republican primary electorate. You know, I know people point to these polls saying we want to see President Trump again. We like President see, seeing President Trump. Um, he's got a favorable rating among the Republican Party anyway, but. You track the actual political elites who have actually had to go up for election, and the ones who are in swing districts or that have to win over voters, like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, tack a very careful line. They embrace Trumpy aspects of his portfolio, particularly on the substantive side, frankly on some of the more damaging, problematic side, I say, as a a native son of Virginia and and someone who follows the politics uh, there closely and feels strongly about them. I don't really like is really a problem for me, but at the same time, doesn't embrace What this is, which is the self-destructive, rhetorical, unable-to-put-a-filter-on-it aspect of Donald Trump— and that's part of the big part of the coalition, the narrative they're spinning that's able to win people over. Frankly, even DeSantis, as much as we uh, people on the you know more politic, progressive side of the spectrum or at least critical of the Trumpy side of the spectrum like to cast him as a new Trump, he's a lot more savvy than Trump is uh, in terms of how he frames things. He embraces certain issues that seem crazy to us from the outside, but he doesn't do the sort of self-destructive stuff. Here, I think we've already seen Republicans begin to drift against him in this regard, um, not just the Adam Kinzinger's and the Liz Cheney's who came out very strongly condemning this sort of statement, but other Republicans are like, I don't know, I'm not gonna maybe I'm not gonna at least talk about this or echo this again. I think that's really telling. You know, he's gonna have a, long, a lot of political sway in 2024. That's certainly true. Like he's got a base, and now he's got a new pack that just started spending money, I think, in the last week or two, for candidates he likes. But his record of endorsements and supporting candidates is not that great, even in Republican primaries. And, you know, I, I think things like this are the things that's gonna hurt him in 2024 because you're gonna have other people or going to say, I can give you 60% of what Trump gives you without the self-destructive part. And a lot of voters, they're going to be able to pull over enough of the voters who don't like Trump's part and compare them with some Trump voters. And I think they're going to be a real rival to try and capture that some of that lightning that uh, Trump has bottled. But uh, you know, we'll have to see.
3: A couple things. So one is, I think you're right about that, Scott. I do wonder whether this desire for sort of a Trump figure who can capture Trump's lightning in a bottle without uh, his foot and mouth disease is contradictory insofar as I think that part of why he was so successful is he was able to sell this sort of vision of authenticity and contrast it with, you know, the corrupt political elites in such a way as to paper over the fact that he himself is a corrupt political elite. And that the the kind of, you know, tells it like he sees it, says whatever comes into his head, voice of the people, energy, I think it's actually kind of hard to capture and channel without including along with it the self-destructive aspects. And one manifestation of that is I was really struck in, in hearing him say this about pardons at how much it echoed some of the comments about pardons that he made during the Mueller investigation and which were prominently cited in the Mueller report as potential evidence for a potential pattern of obstructive conduct and seeking to obstruct the Mueller investigation by encouraging figures like Paul Manafort, Mike Flynn, Roger Stone, uh, implicitly not to cooperate with Mueller by dangling pardons over them. I don't mean to say that this, Reference of pardons was in itself obstructive because he wasn't, you know, making a, a promise. But it does seem like it's it's reflective of a similar way of how he thinks about the pardon power as a way to give favors. And you would think he might have learned from his experience with Mueller that waving pardons around like this can be really counterproductive, especially at a time where you know the January Sixth Committee is clearly very interested in any potential criminal conduct by him so once again i think we kind of we see this way in which the parts of him that can really you know rile up the crowd and get people excited about him are the same things that lead him to you know step on a rake essentially now that's a different question from whether he will ever be held accountable for this kind of language which i think is is really an open question but i do think it it speaks to the way that the rest of the Republican party gets kind of in a bind insofar as the same elements of Trumpism that many Republicans find disturbing and off-putting are those elements that appeal to Trump's really, really hardcore base. And so I I don't know if somebody like DeSantis is going to be able to capture that magic, although he's certainly going to try.
4: Yeah, I guess if I, I could sort of undercut myself uh, a little and, uh, so, one of the other weird things about uh, Trump, though, is that uh, because he is so transparent, a lot of people, at least Bill Barr, for instance, view that as cutting against the notion that he has criminal intent. He's so open about these things, about dangling pardons in front of people or about firing people that are looking into him, that, you know, some people say, well, I guess he doesn't have criminal intent because otherwise why would he be so open about it it's a frustrating thing to watch i hope it's not true but you know it, it, you ask quinta didn't he learn anything from M- muller but he got away <laughs> you know he got away with muller so who didn't learn maybe we didn't learn you know uh, until he there are consequences this guy just continues So far, there's no consequences.
1: I'll agree with Roger on that. And the one thing I'll add uh, on this is that I think actually Trump's approach to these things is part of what constantly makes the obstruction analysis so hard because it makes it hard to pin down his mens rea. Right. Like he's got to have this intent to have obstructive conduct, a corrupt intent. And that seems like objectively evident. Right. You're like, oh, you're saying these things. You're trying to encourage people to do unlawful behavior, or facilitate unlawful behavior, undermine an investigation, et cetera, et cetera. But the way we saw at least Attorney General Barr in framing the Mueller report when he released, I actually wrote a piece on this at the time that no one read in the universe, but I still think it's pretty good. I had reason to revisit it recently, uh, talking about how Barr framed you know, Trump's mentory at the time. And I still think it holds here, which is that he says, no, he was genuinely just so angry he was shooting from the hip. But later he like didn't do that much really to interfere with this. And so the, for that reason, we know he was just angry. He was just bouncing off. Uh, he was lashing out. Uh, but there wasn't that sort of specific intent here because it wasn't, A carefully constructed, savvy enough enterprise to actually effectively obstruct or to reveal the mens rea or the intent to obstruct in any sort of organized, systematized way. And that's because Trump's not a systematized, organized guy, really, right? And he's always got this emotional aspect that lets people frame it. Now, is Barr's analysis going to be the one that future attorney general is going to apply? No. But I do think the Department of Justice is going to only pursue a case where they have the strongest possible record. And that Trump, naturally, because of the way he approached things, because he is so impetuous and so unconventional makes it hard to construct that record in a way that I suspect DOJ is, is always comfortable with because it requires so much inference for somebody who is who is is not the type of reasonable man actor that we're used to drawing inferences from in the law.
3: Moving from domestic crises to international disputes, how is that as a transition? I like it. I couldn't come up with anything better. All right, let's do it. This Friday, the Beijing Winter Olympics are set to begin which raises a whole slew of questions. I think the the Olympics usually always are opportunity for criticism of the International Olympic Committee, which is truly one of the strangest international organizations I've ever read about. Um, There's always some level of corruption, mismanagement, debate over the way to appropriately, you know, build stadiums, house athletes, have the local population interact with the Olympic arena. Uh, but these games are particularly strained, I would say, because not only, of course, are they being held um, in Beijing at a time when China is coming under increasing international criticism for Xi Jinping's sort of authoritarian crackdown, I think we can fairly call it, over a, a long period of years now. And the extreme ethnic violence against Uyghurs in uh, the China's northwest province of Xinjiang. But we are also dealing with COVID, um, which means that China has implemented some pretty draconian COVID protocols to keep athletes from getting COVID, transmitting it to other people. And there's also uh, various domestic crackdowns. There's a controversy over an app. That athletes were uh, either required or encouraged to install regarding COVID status, which uh, the group Citizen Lab reported may have some pretty serious security leaks in it. Um, And to top it all off, the United States and I believe several other countries as well, including Canada, are uh, holding a diplomatic boycott of the Games, which does not mean that U.S. athletes will not be attending. They will be. But that, you know, high level U.S. officials will not be attending Games. So there is a whole stew of issues here that we could discuss. I think my main question is really whether we think that a diplomatic boycott by the US is appropriate on the one hand, or on the other hand, you know, really up to the level of the kind of action that the US should be taking here. I mean, if we're in a situation where China is acting in so many different ways that are really hostile to human rights and dangerous to the people within its borders and outside. Is a diplomatic boycott enough? I mean, should should we have done more? I'm, Scott, I'm curious for your thoughts. You
1: know, it is just this really hard question, and it is a perennial question. I think every Olympics that we have, uh, and a red, I frankly, even like less – high-profile sporting events on occasion, although the Olympics tends to be the big one. but you know, World Cup sometimes encounters uh, uh, similar types of issues. Think about its placement in Qatar and, and things like that, the controversy surrounding that. And it's this question about, like, what's the balance between the, you know, commercial interest in having these sporting events, the... Sportsmanship interests are genuine sports fan interests, the genuine goodwill it can promote if it's internationally, which I think is real. At least people buy into enough, compared with the dangers of normalizing or providing economic boost to states that may be doing bad things. And I don't I don't know what the right answer is. I think the diplomatic boycotts probably strikes a good position for the US government. Um, you know, I think anything more aggressive would have been an escalatory move with China at a time where where the Biden administration doesn't need to be escalating things with China. You've already got a very uh, dangerous escalatory relationship with Ukraine. The Biden administration has kind of pushed the envelope around Taiwan uh, in kind of interesting ways, more so even a little bit than uh, the Trump administration did in a meaningful way in terms of involving them in the democracy summit, kind of like doing a couple of symbolic things that China at least has, has responded to very negatively. So I don't know if making a big public show uh, of this would have been huge, nor would have necessarily made a big impact unless accompanied by other governments. I mean, the United States could sit out the Olympics entirely, like try and ban, you know, not give visas to Olympians to participate, refuse to send an official delegation. But that would be really domestically controversial. You would get a big pushback from all sorts of industries that see the Olympics as a big money maker. Although NBC has both the Super Bowl and the Olympics this year, as they've made a big deal about, so maybe they'd be okay financially somehow. And NBC would muddle through. It's a hard trade-off there. For me, the bigger question is: How long are we going to play in a system where? The host government is putting such dramatic restrictions on their own participants in this. Like China has come out and said, Olympians, you can't participate, make political statements as part of your participation in these games. That strikes me as a pretty dramatic step, right? It's not really consistent with a lot of our fundamental human rights obligations. Uh, about that will provide some degree of freedom of expression, um, or at least underscore support for them. Um, it is consistent with IOC policies because the IOC has been willing to say, like, oh, yeah, athletes, you don't really get any opportunities to speak out about anything. We're going to have to stick by the host government's rules. And to some extent, that makes sense. Like, again, there's a balancing act. Like, states genuinely have different approaches to a lot of policies. Um, and so maybe you don't want to give, like, every Olympian a chance to come out and speak about everything. But I also don't, what's the harm in that? You know, like, states have to learn to endure a degree of, of criticism, and particularly if they're going to be hosting big events like this. And, you know, if former Olymp, yeah, foreign Olympians want to come to the United States and Olympics in the United States and protest aspects of US policy, I'd be fine with that. Um, Because in America, Americans are probably protesting it already, and you're providing added platform to that. I don't know why we should be facilitating and allowing and participating in a system that fundamentally undercuts uh, those rights of representation. So yeah, I think that's actually the biggest bigger question is, is how exactly the IOC goes about this, and then how the United States, both as a government and frankly, as consumers and as athletes and as the other people feed into the system, why and how we're continuing to participate in that system they've set up.
3: One one note before we go further, I think the, the IOC typically bans athletes from political expression that's, when that's when they're participating in, in the games. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's sort of it's not just, you know, the IOC going along with China. It's the IOC stacking Chinese restrictions on top of Pre-existing restrictions. Although I will
1: say, you know, there have there are almost every Olympics that I can recall instances, particularly during like the opening ceremonies or the closing ceremonies, because after anybody can really do anything, where you see athletes wearing you know flags or doing something else that represents some sort of political speech. So like, there's always been a little fudge in those rules, and particularly after the fact, after the medals are awarded and they're hard to pull back. But uh, you know, you're I think you're right. Like the official line of IOC has always been, you don't have a right to do this as an athlete, and I just query why that's a desirable policy for the governments that support speech rights? I mean, I don't think it's a desirable policy. It's just about
2: how much leverage do you have? And with the rise of China as a global superpower, I'm just not sure how realistic it is to expect the IOC to impose, I think they're the right human rights standards, but you know, lots of governments don't, including the second most powerful government in the world. I mean, I think the problem is, right, I mean, do you view, you know, if, if you really view the Olympics, I think, as a global sporting event where each country gets to participate basically just because it's a country, then the Olympics becomes a kind of, you know, UN type situation. Um, and the whole point of it is that it is maximally inclusive and I think you have to choose between either a really global Olympics where your standard for boycott is extraordinarily high and you basically just have to treat countries like black boxes, or you can say, I just don't think it's worth it. I just don't think it's worth having this charade of global sports cooperation. Um, Now, I think that's a perfectly uh, legitimate position. And and I think we do kind of put too much on the Olympics. And, and, you know, I understand that for a lot of the athletes, um, this is... The, the highest uh, venue. And, and so, you know, I do understand why why they want to make sure that the Olympics participate. B- but I, I don't think you can sort of simultaneously say that the Olympics is a truly international event and, and then basically impose any qualification
1: for participation or hosting other than you are a country. But Alan, there's two different types of participation. And we're talking about hosting the Olympics, not participating in the Olympics, right? Doesn't that change the calculus a bit? I mean maybe
2: a, a, maybe a little bit. I mean the problem is someone has to host anyway, right? So I I'm just I'm just not sure how much of an honor hosting even is at this point. You you have to host and you're going to have to host in a particular country. I mean unless you want to move to a system which is is often suggested and I think has a lot of merit to it, right, in which you have three or four countries that just have permanent Olympic facilities, which of course has the benefit for those countries of not wasting a lot of money. It's probably economically much better. And if you have that kind of situation, then I think you can move to a system in which, you know, for those countries that, that host the Olympics, because they're repeat hosters Um, You can make the Olympics more of a kind of actual international zone, right, in the way that the UN in New York, right, Um, is kind of obviously it's in New York and therefore it's in the United States, but it's thought of more as kind of a a, a pure international zone. But I do think if you're going to have this system of hosting the Olympics and you're going to have the idea of an Olympics, I mean, I, I think you have to kind of just... You Have to use the same rules you use the UN, which is if you're a country, you kind of get to do, relatively speaking, what you want. Now, maybe we should just not have the Olympics. I mean, I'm very open to that possibility, but uh, it's hard to have it both ways, at least in in, in my in my view.
3: I mean, I, Alan, there has to be some kind of line between no distinction and no distinction. Everybody gets to participate, and no Olympics. There, there's a very broad spectrum. There, I mean again, we are talking about a a competition that very famously was held in Nazi Germany in nineteen thirty six so it's not it's not like it they've covered themselves in glory in the past, but it does strike me that there are ways to grapple with the range of sort of moral and political questions here other than just saying. It's the Olympics, so all bets are off. Everybody gets to come, and we can host it wherever.
2: Well, I, I, I mean, I think that's a good argument for not having the Olympics, right? I mean, I, I really do. I think, I think, I think if you have a world in which the second most important country and the second most important athletic participant, right? If you just look at medal counts, et cetera, et cetera, right? China is at least for, for summer events, like almost as good as the United States, and presumably they'll get there with, with winter, right? I mean, they have a huge population and, and they're really committed to Olympic success. You know, if you have a situation in which for the foreseeable future, the second most important Olympic country is fundamentally opposed to human rights values, I think you just don't have Olympics at that point. But it, but it does seem weird to me to, to have this weird debate over whether or not we should boycott or not. If you're, if you're going to have an Olympics, it has to include China, right? If it doesn't include China, it's just not an Olympics at that point, right? In, I think arguably the same way that the Olympics that didn't include the Soviet Union and then the Olympics that didn't include the United States were just not like real
1: Olympics. But Alan, why is it that the International Olympic Committee, which dis- or the Part of it that decides you know, who hosts these governments, which is a highly sought after and competed after honor, which brings exactly. economic benefit to the countries that are desperately pursuing it, for which developing countries are actively competing. And the IOC has just implemented a whole new set of norms to allow countries to use whatever additional access to credit and stuff that tends to come with the International Olympic, hosting the Olympics. To further development goals, because that has been a problem in the past and probably is still a problem. Honestly, I don't think it always pays off the way people think it will for a lot of these states. But you know, they're still actively competing over it. Like there are a number of states trying to get this. Why is is it the IOC should be allowed to default to a system where they say no? There's no expectation of expression at all for this diverse community of people coming to join, all of whom are supposed to be. Benefiting from international human rights treaties, of which China is a party, and these other states are a party, by the way. They haven't withdrawn. Uh, They just don't really bother to enforce it or pay much attention to it, right? And most international human rights bodies, like, kind of agree with that. No one's talking about, you know, you can take over the platform and give an hour long speech about every topic that comes to the head. The idea that, you know, you are forced to, you know, risk your qualification to compete, to remain completely silent about certain political issues, I, I just am not sure that's. That that makes a lot of sense. You know, the IOC is adopting the lowest common denominator in a situation where I'm not sure it's appropriate for it to do so. And and you know, again, hosting is different from participating. I would be much more critical of restrictions on participation. But not every country gets to host. Um, That's a privilege, and why does that privilege not come along with higher sets of expectations?
2: I, I guess I'm just not sure what you want the IOC to do here. The the hosting is set up a long time in advance. China will not presumably abide to IOC demands for athletes to be able to talk about freeing Tibet, Hong Kong, and Taiwanese independence. So if, if, if the, if, if the proposal is we should only have Olympics right in Switzerland, basically right. Kind of small countries that don't like, don't really get involved in, in political disputes. Yeah. That that seems totally plausible to me. I'm, I'm just not sure at this point what, what the ask is. Um, exactly. And and how that is going to kind of overcome the fact that China is very powerful and it's going to have the Olympics it wants to have.
3: You heard it here first, folks. Rational security is in favor of canceling the Olympics. <laughs> I'm uh,
4: way outside my lane here, but um, I will cautiously uh, say I sort of agree with uh, I think I agree with Alan, uh, maybe a less articulate version of Alan. You know, on this, but uh, it's
2: literally not possible to be a less <laughs> articulate version of Alan. Okay. Sadly. But even
4: the 1936 Olympics, which is an extreme example, you know, what do we remember it for? We remember it for what Jesse Owens did. I uh, am the only one here that probably remembers the 1968 Olympics, and I don't know where it was held, but uh, what I remember was the Soviet Union had just invaded uh, Czechoslovakia and the Czech athlete uh, Vera Czesławska won the gold defeating the uh, Russian athlete uh, and uh, how moving that was. I I think, you know, in the end you sort of lose all of these things if you press these human rights arguments to their logical conclusion.
1: But just to underscore the point here, like, Jesse Owens made such a notable appearance and symbolically significant appearance in the 1936 Olympics because the International Olympics insisted that Nazi Germany not apply its conventional standards about what, you know, ethnic minorities were allowed to do in Germany at the time. Right. They forced them, they leveraged them to say, you are going to allow black athletes to participate if they're sent by their host government. That's what we're talking about here. Like, that's a a sign where you're saying you've got to create space for these sorts of moments and these sorts of expressions. And, you know, I I don't think, while, you know, I don't think it's quite right to lump China in with Nazi Germany, like in this case in 1936. It's also not right to say that only that line is, is where it's appropriate to start drawing those better standards about what the baseline conduct would be for hosting the Olympics. I think we can strike a little more broadly. And basic human rights expressions in ways that don't interfere uh, with the sports, or maybe even just something as baseline is not surveilling your athletes, which is something we have good reason to believe China is preparing to do and, and has already installed the mechanisms to start doing as soon as people arrive. That strikes me as a low-hanging fruit for the International Olympic Committee to apply. And again, there's the same uh, body that has failed to effectively deter Russia from just outright cheating at the Olympics they hosted just a few years ago. So maybe they're just not up to the task. Well, for better or for worse, this is all the time we have for this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over the remainder of your week. Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started.
3: My object lesson is going to be a tiny, tiny portion of Crow. I'm going to engage in some pundit accountability because I was alerted after our episode last week came out uh, by one Benjamin Wittes that I had said something that was false The falsehood is my mistake. Uh, When we were discussing ISIS prisoners in the Middle East, um, I'd said that uh, Zarqawi, who is the founder of ISIS, had been imprisoned in an American prison where he was radicalized. I got him mixed up with uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Baghdadi was in an American prison. Zarqawi was in a Jordanian prison. The fact stands, prisons, radicalization, they often go together. Not a good combination, but I did want to correct the record.
1: Alan, how about you go ahead with yours? So uh, my object
2: lesson is uh, some excellent long-form journalism. So I I have a a small child, uh, an infant. And so every night there's bedtime, which is lovely because my wife and I get to hang out with a kid and and put him to bed and and read him a story. And fortunately, he's actually young enough that we don't have to read him children's literature yet, although children's literature is great. Um, We can just read uh, him long-form uh, journalism that my wife and I want to read to each other, which is <laughs> fantastic, right? He's just he gets words, right? It's they're still words, uh, so yeah, we're very up on our New Yorker and our Atlantic long form pieces, uh, and so the piece we're reading right now, which is just so entertaining, um, definitely not otherwise appropriate for a ten month old child, but again, I'm pretty sure he has no idea what we're saying. Um, is a fantastic uh, Vanity Fair uh, profile by Gabriel Sherman of one Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, the son of the famous uh, televangelist Jerry Falwell uh, and president of the um, conservative Christian Liberty University. Um, You may recall that uh, Jerry Falwell had a kind of stunning fall from grace um, involving a sex scandal between him and his wife and a Miami pool boy turned, it gets very complicated. It's super interesting. It's a fascinating, um, I think, fundamentally sympathetic, but quite rigorous portrayal of this individual and the story of this interesting father-son dynamic. Um, And it makes a great evening reading. Um, I'm I'm thinking I still have another couple of months before I need to take my my child's preferences
1: into account when it comes to uh, bedtime stories. We are still doing the uh, Sandra Boyton series of dino snores books uh, with our one-year-old. So you are a little more advanced than us. Although I do recommend that as a child series. It's about dinosaurs that snore. So really good bedtime uh, reading. It kind of gets you in the spirit a little bit. But I guess The New Yorker works too. That's fine. For my object lesson, uh, as I mentioned, I am celebrating the end of dry January with wet February, uh, where I've been enjoying uh, a nice little heated cocktail beverage uh, as we've been recording uh, on this Tuesday morning. This is my endorsement. I'm continuing my series of cocktail recipes and uh, recommendations. And this particular one, I highly recommend it as a breakfast option. Uh, you could do it in the evening as well, but it's probably highly caffeinated unless you do use decaf coffee. Uh, but it's uh, called Amaro Caldo, uh, which means hot Amaro, I think, in Italian. And it's developed by a restaurant called Dao, which I can only assume is a high-end Simpsons-themed uh, restaurant in Milan that uh, serves this at the end of meals, which is essentially it is a mocha pot that kind of funky Italian kettle that you use to make very strong coffee in. But instead of filling it with water, you fill it with about two-thirds water, one-third Amaro of your choice, uh, and then whatever herbs and flavorings you want. So in mine this morning, I threw in some lemon peel. I threw in some canela, soft cinnamon. I had a little bit of star anise, just a little bit. A little bit goes a long way, a couple of cloves. I got to say, it is Phenomenal. Knock your socks off. Great. Also, not very alcoholic. If my boss is happy to listen to this, trust me, it's fine. Uh, Very, very, very responsible uh, amount to drink. So I will highly recommend this as something to try at home. I did it with Amaro Lusano, which is kind of like a, you know, Alpine E, a little bit sweeter Amaro, I think, it'd be really good with Brólio. That's the one people recommend doing it with. Uh, I think I want to try it with Avianna next, which, as people know from my prior object lessons, I like in coffee a great deal. Um, so I'm going to keep experimenting with this. But I highly recommend it for folks who are still looking for that caffeinated alcohol combo, particularly if you're willing to go the extra step
4: of getting the mocha pot together.
1: Roger, let me turn it over to you. Uh,
4: well, I'll continue on the uh, wet February theme, and uh, I'll uh, suggest. I I was recently uh, in uh, France with my wife's family and uh, they make wines and spirits. They're from the the Girard region, which is in the east. And uh, they make some wines that are quite accessible and some that are not. I mean, in terms of being an acquired taste. But I've been going there now, you know, about 13 years, and I'm beginning to acquire some of those tastes. And the one uh, that this year I began to acquire, I began to appreciate, uh, is actually the most famous of that region. It's called a yellow wine, Vanjon. And the great thing about recommending Vanjone, I, I recommend that you have it with something from the Girard, like a Conte cheese. You, that's, you, the pairings are quite difficult. Otherwise, and the great thing about this is that it will be very hard for you to disagree with me because it's very hard to find it in the U.S. Um, there are some restaurants uh, that have it in uh, uh, New York City. I don't I don't know about D.C. I, I assume that there are. But what makes it tricky is that it comes in a bottle and it has to be sold this way or it can't use the AOC, the uh, Vergeone it has to be so in a bottle that is uh 62 deciliters is that right uh, 620 milliliters and uh the US customs only permits 750 or 375 so uh they're protecting us uh, diligently from uh Vain Unfortunately, so I don't know in the in the what happens in the back room of the restaurant before they serve you the glass. What it's coming out of exactly uh, in New York, but um, anyway, uh, if you can get your hands on some Van Jones and pair it with something appropriate, I, I would recommend trying it.
1: Roger, I'm going to take that as a challenge and a challenge accepted uh, because. As folks who may not know who listen, but if you live in Washington, DC area, we are the capital of imported booze in the entire nation. It's better best place to import booze from anywhere in the world in the United States because District of Columbia Was not around in the same legal structure that it was during Prohibition. And therefore, it does not have weird Prohibition era state laws interfering with the resale of alcohol, importation of alcohol. Um, So, this is the place to do it. Although, I don't know about that customs restriction. That may still pose some obstacles. We will have to see, but challenge accepted. We're going to see what we can make happen here. Maybe we'll have a little tasting uh, at a future episode and can have you back for round two here on Raft Security 2.0. But until then, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forbear a, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please, please do follow us on Twitter at RATLsecurity, and whenever or wherever you download the podcast, be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co host Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Roger Parloff, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next
4: week. Until then, goodbye.